Amen. Amen. You may be seated, which has a little extra emphasis this morning, doesn't it? Um, I, I, there, there should be plenty of chairs if you guys want to come on in and, and, and sit down. Uh, I, I, my name is John Allen. Um, I welcome to Risen Church. I want to, uh, uh, Pastor Dave kind of commented on the chair thing. The chairs are on their way. Yay. So um, if there's an open chair, there's like up front here as well. You're welcome to sit down. Um, I also thank you for those of you that are like, I'm good. I appreciate that. Um, I, I, one of the things that I, 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 we, I'll give you a little behind the scenes and how we operate in showing hospitality to uh, basically our city, right? Our mission is sharing life in Christ with each other, uh, our city and beyond. And so one of the ways that we do that is, again, sharing life um, and showing hospitality to others. And so one of the things about the temple, um, if you guys are, are familiar with the temple in uh, the Old Testament, uh, is that the outer court of the temple, the way it was situated, look at that, we've got chairs, how about it? Um, so uh, yeah, this is uh, one of the, the, the aspects of the temple is that in the center part of the temple is where the Holy of Holies was, right? So that's like where the manifest presence of God dwelled behind the veil uh, at the mercy seat. And so um, essentially what would take place in the temple is that there were different levels and different courts, right? So there's like an inner court, an outer court, um, right? So there's different ways of entering into the presence of God, different like areas. And so um, the outer court was reserved for the Gentiles or the non-Jews or those that did not know about really the word of God. They didn't grow up around it. They didn't have an understanding of the gospel that was being proclaimed, right? So the gospel itself is that, that God became a man, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life, and it's an eternal life that starts now, right? Not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling spirit of God who meets us where we are and changes us from the inside out. He transforms our lives. This is the gospel or the good news or the message of Jesus Christ. And that is not just a New Testament thing. That's something that was being proclaimed in the Old Testament for thousands of years through the sacrificial system that Jesus uh, established or that God established in the redemptive story, right? So the temple itself was a place where in order to come into the presence of God, you had to bring a sacrifice, Right? You had to sacrifice a lamb. There was a, a, a blood sacrifice that took place. And so the outer court was reserved for those that didn't have an understanding of all of these things. And so they would come into that outer court and they would watch what was essentially the gospel taking place before them. Isn't that cool? This is why when Jesus shows up on the scene, this is one of the reasons why when Jesus shows up on the scene, the outer court that was supposed to be reserved for the Gentiles to come in and see the glory of God on display in the sacrificial system, he gets really upset, right? Why? Because they've turned it into a place for like money exchange and selling things. And he calls it a den of thieves. And he starts throwing tables over and all this stuff. Do you know why it upset him so much? Because it had become a barrier to those far from God to be able to then see God. Does that make sense? 
And so this is one of the reasons why when we are here, this is why we do the flags, this is why we do the signs, this is why we want to make sure that the chairs are set up and all the things are right. This is why we serve. This is what we're doing is we're making sure that this gospel presentation, that there's nothing that stands between, like the gospel itself is offensive. Amen? People don't like to be told or hear that they are a sinner in need of grace, right? Um, and so the gospel itself is offensive, and yet we do strive for nothing else to be offensive. Amen? And so this is a little behind the scenes and the why behind the what. So you can imagine when we get here and we're like, man, we don't have enough chairs. That, my pastor heart's like, oh, no. You know what I mean? And so again, thank you. Um, it's, it's, we thank you for noticing and seeing that we had enough chairs for people that as they come in that they have a place to sit and a place to be and a place to come and so welcome um and so again thank you and so uh this morning we're actually going to continue through our series um and as i've uh, this morning just thinking about um what the lord's laid on our heart or, or what we have in our next um chapter in john as we continue through the book of john um, I was thinking about the ways that we refer to Christians, right? Like, how, how do you, to identify a legitimate Christian? Like, we often struggle with the terminology. Have you noticed this? Like, especially in our, our culture, like, you'd think that saying a person is a Christian would be enough, but we live in a world that's been so twisted that, that has actually twisted the actual message of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, that most people don't even know what Christianity is actually all about at all. I don't know if you know this or not. A lot of people think they're Christians. They're definitely not, because they don't even know what that means. Like, so many people call themselves Christians, which, hear me, Christian is a biblical term. It is a good term. It is a great term. I am a Christian, Right? I love it. It's great. It literally means like mini Jesus or, or trying to be like a Jesus follower, right? And so, uh, or, or a little Christ, right? Um, obviously, I am not Christ, but Christ dwells within me. You get it. So, but the point here is that like it's a biblical term, but so many times we, we try to, um, it, it, people use it to describe a belief system that honestly is very far from the gospel message of Jesus Christ, Right? So we end up using designators like born again, or saved, or that person is a believer to communicate that someone is actually a Christian. It's a way to differentiate those who are actually following Jesus from those who sort of associate with Christianity and just kind of hover in the background, right? They're the people that come to the outer court and they just kind of watch from a distance. And they associate with the people of God, but they are not a part of the people of God, because they don't really seem to have any real relationship with Jesus. But one of the descriptions that I really like is when someone says they love Jesus. Right? Have you ever heard that description? Like when people are talking about you know, someone, it's like, you know Sam? Like, did you know Sam was a Christian? It's like, yeah, man. That man loves Jesus. Right? Have you ever heard that? I love all those other descriptors also, but when people talk about my life or my family or, or risen church, like I want them to say, man, those people love Jesus, right? They just love Jesus. Like, like yes, we love his word. 
Yes, we love his presence. Yes, we love each other. But the reason we serve, the reason we gather, the reason we give, the reason we worship, it's all because we love Jesus. And the reason we love Jesus is because we know his love for us. Like our our love for him is a direct response to his love for us, which is what it's really all about. Like this is the bedrock of our church. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Now, some of you may be tempted to check out when you hear the word love, right? Like, because you, you think of love as defined by the way this world thinks of love. In some ways, it's so ill-defined, and it's such a twisted version of what God declares love is, that when we hear love, we think of it as like an, a gushy, insubstantial, no-substance, sort of like empty sentiment that just fades with the next emotion, We think of love as something that's totally bound to our feelings, and if we don't feel it, then that means we just fell out of love. Let me tell you something. If you fall out of love, you never loved to begin with. Okay? Because the way that love in the Scriptures is presented to us is the opposite of that kind of love. Like, in fact, it's, it, it, if that's where your mind goes when you think about love, then you, you've let the world define what love is instead of Jesus. So this morning I hope to bring some definition to what it means to love Jesus. This isn't just fickle sentimentality that's swayed by every lapsing emotion. It's the kind of love that transcends the way we feel at any given moment because it's rooted and it's grounded in the unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending, steadfast love of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no feeling or emotion attached to it. But it takes that feeling and it aligns it. It heals it. Because oftentimes our feelings are so just broken and they're twisted into something that's not true. And what the love of God does is it brings redemption and healing to that emotion and it tells it what is true. And it says, think about this correctly. Feel this correctly. And so this morning, again, I want to bring some definition to what it means to love Jesus. See, when you know his love, when you've experienced his love, when you are looking and beholding him and how he loves you, it changes you. It recreates you, and it shores up all that insecurity and all that ego. It satisfies your soul, and it brings a sweet and yet stable flavor to all of your interactions and all of your relationships. And so where bitterness remains or where bitterness would insert itself into those relationships, which it does and it tries, right? In those places, his love then identifies it, right? And he calls us to deal with it. And not just because you fear the consequences, right? But because you've tasted and seen that he alone is good and it's at his right hand are true pleasures forevermore. So sometimes it's easy to only think of experiencing God's presence in like hyper-spiritual terms, right? Like, and then you expect an encounter with him to be like some dramatic scene from a movie, right? It's like flashing lights and maybe some trumpets blowing, you know? And so you're like, you're expecting some like encounter with God to be like that, like mountaintop hurricane status stuff, 
you know? And unless something crazy like that happens, then you've just been left alone and God's not there. Unless, like, God just goes, boom, and everything in your heart and everything in your life is totally different, you see in color, and you're like, wow! That's often what we're waiting for, for an encounter with God. But that does, hear me, that does happen. That there are moments in life where that does happen. I've experienced them. They are real. But more often than not, he comes to us like a warm blanket. He patiently and he kindly warms those cold insecurities and he melts that hard-hearted self-centeredness. And he does it with a patient joy while offering true security and true satisfaction. And he often does it in a process. Like we want it microwaved, right? But he often does it for the long run. Now, I'll also say that sometimes when we're stubborn, he needs to turn the heat up and warm, a warm blanket then can become a little bit more like a consuming fire of conviction. And that does happen. But either way, he loves you enough to get the job done. Amen? And so that process, though, can be frustrating. It can even be irritating. Like, it doesn't always feel great, especially when you're walking through it with other people, which he calls us to do, right? And yet, his grace is sufficient for the task, and his love is enough to see you through it. Amen? And so he, he, he does, ultimately, it's his love that's all satisfying. And when you drink from those living waters, it changes you. It changes how you view others. And it changes how you view yourself. That's why I like hearing about Christians as those who love Jesus. That's why I love that. I love it. So somebody's like, yeah, man. Yeah, they, they love Jesus. It's like, <laughs> because to love Jesus means you've received the love of Jesus. It's why the Apostle John described himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like what he's really saying is, I really, really love Jesus. Because he really, really, really loved me first, even when I didn't deserve it. That's what he's saying. So, so that's, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> loving Jesus. Not just obeying Jesus. Not even just believing he's real. But loving and being loved by him. Because that's where it really starts. And that's what it's all about. Now the truth is, you can't even really obey Jesus until you love him. Because his number one commandment is a commandment to love. How are you going to obey him if you don't love him? When his number one commandment is to love him. Right? So if you miss that, then your Christianity just be, it's just this burdensome noise, right? Like a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just empty, self-righteous, overly critical, resentful burden and bitterness. That's called empty, dry religion. Right? But this morning, we're going to continue through our series in the book of John called Sharing Life Like Christ. And we're going to look at a powerful interaction between the risen Jesus and his failed and ashamed disciple, Simon Peter. And in this interaction, Jesus asks him one question, but he asks him this question three times in a row. You know what that question was? Do you love me? 
It's the most fundamental question in all creation. Do you love Jesus? He could have asked Peter all kinds of questions, right? Like he could have asked, do you trust me? That's valid. Could have asked him, do you believe in me? He could have even asked him, you know, will you follow me? But that's not what he asks. He goes right to the heart, right to the root and source and foundation of it all. And he asks, first and foremost, do you love me? Because without love, none of it matters. Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sin and conquer the grave through the resurrection just so we would act right. right? He didn't do it for our obedience. He did it because he loves us. And to receive his love, it means loving him back. Now hear me. You can't stop there, right? Because if you define love by the way this world defines love, then there is no obedience. You're like, oh yeah, I love God. And then you're just over here doing stuff that just breaks his heart. And you're willfully like, yeah, I love you, but I love this more. Right? That's not love, right? So, so hear me, like this is important. Jesus is clear. John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say if you love me, you'll live in moral perfection. He says if you love me, you'll care about what I say. You'll keep my words, not dismiss or ignore them or take them for granted. He doesn't say it's not going to be a struggle. He didn't say it's not going to be difficult. But he did say, keep it. Don't throw it out. Don't ignore it. Hear what I'm saying and value my words and what I've called you to. Because if you don't care about that type of obedience, it's a symptom of your heart. Right? Like you can't be like, oh, I love God. I just hate his children. You know? I love God, I, I, but, but hate your brother. In fact, right after John tells us that, it, it, that we love God because he first loved us, he says in 1 John 4, 20, in verse 21, he, he says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen not seen right and this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must also love his brother now yes this is why joining a local church is so important and 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 i should say this is why joining a local church is so important to jesus right like i i hear oftentimes we think that joining a local church is about us because we are naturally self-centered people but i want you to look at the heart of god i want you to look at the heart of christ right? Like, why is it so important to him? Like, I hear this mess about not having to go to church to be saved all the time, and it's true. You don't have to go to church to be saved. First of all, you don't go to church anyway. Church is not a place you go. It's a people we belong with. It's not an event you attend, right? It's a people you partner on mission with, right? And, and, and so it is true. It, you don't have to go to some specific building in order to be saved but here's my question why wouldn't you want to gather with the people jesus loves like what's what what people are really saying there is i love jesus i just don't care about the people he loves or the purpose he's called me to and so the question jesus is asking is do you love me I'm not asking, do you love yourself? I'm not asking whether or not this is all serving you and all these other things, right? Now, in, 
Listen, if you trust that Jesus loves you, you know that what he asks of you is the best thing for you because he loves you more than you do. And he wants your joy more than you want your joy. Does that make sense? That's extremely important. It's all, do you see, it's all about this loving relationship that you, you, you've seen and received that he loves you and then you respond by loving him. And so it's through honestly dealing with that one big question that ultimately brings about restoration in your heart. Again, this isn't an emotion that we just conjure up out of thin air. Our love for him is the direct response to his love for us. And so again, that's the main thing that I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, that's what I want you to get. That your love for Jesus is a direct response to his love for you. Do you love Jesus? If you do, then follow him. If you don't, if you don't, then ask yourself why not. That's key. Don't just leave it there. Right? My hope this morning is that you behold just how much he loves you, and as a result, you fall deeper in love with Jesus. No matter how long you've been walking with him, my hope and prayer is that you would fall deeper and deeper in love with him, because I'm telling you, to gaze and behold upon his love for you is infinite. Like, you've never just figured it out. Right? But if you don't, then my prayer is that you wouldn't give up that you would press in and press down deep into your own heart and your own soul. And I pray that you would behold who he is and what he's done for you and get real honest with yourself and God and ask, what is the true barrier here? And then allow him to deal with it. Again, my hope for us all is that our love for him would soar to new heights in direct response to his love for us. And so that is what sharing life in Christ is really all about. It's not sharing obedience or rules or even a value system. It's pointing each other to Jesus because he is our value system. He is all valuable the, the, and he is everything. Of course, we do value things. We have value statements. But you know what? They all flow directly out of Christ and his word and his message, and his gospel, and his goodness, and his grace. So, look at the way the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church, or look at the way the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I know I read this a lot, but I'm going to continue to, because I love it. Verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is the reason I'm praying. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is true shalom. It's true peace. It's wholeness. It's restoration. And it comes from being rooted and grounded in love. Not swayed by this world or even your impaired feelings, but strengthened in your inner being. And that's the only way that those feelings are going to be restored to what is true anyway, right? 
And so he goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask to think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I don't want you to notice that before any of the doing happens, before any of the doing takes place, it's all just a response of loving. Like it's the overflow of intentionally plumbing the depths of God's love for us in Christ. And so again, in order to share life like Christ, you've got to be sharing life in Christ because you can't be a conduit of something that you've never experienced, you've never known or pressed into. And so that's when you accept that all the things in this world actually do work for the good of those who love him and are called to his purposes. Like that's when you experience his perfect love that casts out fear. That's when you experience the love for the brotherhood that covers a multitude of sins. It's when you forgive just as you've been forgiven and that's when you love just as you've been loved. And when you fall short because that's what happens, when we lose sight of his love for us, we end up falling short and then his grace is sufficient for his power is perfected in our weakness. And yes, there is a lot of scripture in there. There's a lot of hope here, guys. And so it all comes from knowing and being known by the very essence of true love itself. Not just our idea of what love should or could be, but the genuine, all-satisfying love of Christ. Right? It's not the love of a child. It's not the love of your earthly parents. It's not the love of your spouse or a friend or your boss. None of that's going to ever fully satisfy, but they can become shadows and images of his love, but only if you're drinking from the source. Like those things are not sources in themselves. They're designed to be conduits. They're they're fallen shadows and reflections. In themselves, they'll never be enough. But when you're drinking from the source, all those shadows and images of his love, they find their rightful place, and you yourself then even become a conduit of that love. To those around you it's almost as though you're redeemed restored renewed so again the question though is do you love jesus like actively like it's not just a state of mind right it's not just something you associate with it's something you identify with like it's a state of being and a daily posture that's what it means to love jesus right it's why it's daily bread that we're feasting on his word and his presence. And so we're going to look at John 21. Let's turn there, chapter 21. And we're going to walk through this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And as we do, I'm going to point out three ways Jesus specifically loves on Peter, which are also three ways that Jesus specifically loves on us. And so a quick roadmap for the rest of our time here. The first way is that Jesus doesn't just give Peter a second chance, he gives him a new beginning. The second way is that Jesus invites Peter to be honest with what's in his heart and live by what he believes. Or, as my wife says, Jesus makes you face your stuff. Look, look, cut to the point. Sometimes I'm like, I just need to run all my points by her. When they get too wordy, I'm like, can you just reword this for me? Sorry. And the third... Jesus loves Peter by making a way for him to follow, even when his flesh doesn't want to. (coughs) Excuse me. So the question then becomes, do you love Jesus? John 21, verse 1. Read with me. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, 
and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out to go in, or, or sorry, they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So John's setting the scene here. And the disciples were just in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. And Jesus has revealed himself twice to them uh, in Jerusalem while they were there. And then once uh, he, well, the first time he revealed himself to them was obviously Easter, right? Easter Sunday, um, a resurrection. And then that was just after Passover. And then a week later, while Thomas is with them, he reveals himself to them again. So we talked about that last week, right? So but some, now it says that after some time, so sometime after that, Peter then decides to go fishing. Now, lots of people have said that this was Peter rejecting his responsibilities as a disciple, and he's going back to his old ways. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. Like, I, I actually think that he's doing the responsible thing, which would have been providing for himself and his family and his friends in the way that he knows how to, which was fishing, right? He's just walked with Jesus, and Jesus has literally been commanding his every move and attention, and he's been everything, and now Jesus is gone, and he's like, well, now what? So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You, well, I go fishing. But <laughs> you do the wise thing, the logical thing, right? So he's not being paralyzed, which I think is actually a quality of his leadership. And so at, at this point, they, they haven't been given any instruction from Jesus, so they just do what that logical thing is. And so that, for them, it was make a living, right? And so he and the six other disciples take about a 70-mile journey on foot, from Jerusalem back to the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee, okay? So now Jesus has already revealed himself to them again twice. And so these guys ha have just spent the last three years following Jesus everywhere. And so, again, like, this is a bit of a culture shock for them, like, even to know what to do next. And so um, they know that nothing is going to be really usual again for them anymore. But here they're just, again not being paralyzed and moving forward. So verse four, here we go. So they are, uh, they've been fishing all night. And then verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, let this scene sink in. They've just toiled all night long. So night was the preferred time to fish back then so that you could catch uh, your your, your you could sell your catch fresh in the market the next morning, right? So they struggled all night in the dark. I don't know if you've ever been fishing and not caught anything. I don't know if you've ever fished all night long and not caught anything. It's a little discouraging, okay? And so I want you to also see that as they're toiling and struggling and striving, they're doing it at nighttime in the darkness. And remember, Throughout the book of John, darkness represents confusion and uncertainty, while light represents revelation, okay? So it seems that the disciples are still pretty confused about what's just happened. Maybe this time, their hearts are still unsure about where they stand with Jesus. They've seen his, he's resurrected, but they don't really understand what all that means. Like it seems that they're in the dark in regards to their restoration and the fullness of their relationship with Jesus at this point. It probably just felt like they had to fend for themselves again. Now they're just kind of on their own, right? Jesus is way over there. We're alone. And so after a long night of toiling fruitlessly in the dark, 
they were probably more than just a little frustrated, right? It'd be like, oh, I don't know, toiling the land, trying to grow a crop, and instead of fruit, it just produces thorns and thistles, feels cursed, right? And so at least for Peter, there would have been some darkness that lingered. Even in his own heart, there would have been a darkness that lingered in him about his own betrayal of Jesus. Like maybe even some tension between him and the other disciples, right? Like would they ever fully trust him again? Remember, he denied Jesus three times. Not long ago. So even, even the tension, not just between him and God, not just between him and Jesus, but w- even between him and the other disciples, like he's kind of supposed to be the leader and, and he bailed on Jesus. So maybe there's tension there. Would they ever really trust him again? Would they ever be able to see him in the same way? Could they ever, you know, would things between Peter and the other disciples ever be the same? But again, more importantly, will things between Peter and Jesus ever be the same again? Like the thought of, like, what does Jesus think of me would have plagued him. Like the thought that he must be so disappointed in me. You ever felt that way? Like you just feel like you're just not living up to his expectations? It feels like a darkness and a distance. This is right where Peter would have been. They couple that with the fruitless toiling for fish all night, and it comes with a deep striving to be good enough, successful enough, and anything to make him feel like he, something less than a failure, and yet he's just failing. Just like in his faithfulness, he's failed at fishing also, and so he's also let the other disciples down who were maybe depending on him to show them where the fish were. So there's this sense of disappointment and shame, and it would have been really real. But dawn is breaking. And about a hundred yards away in the dim light of morning, a man they couldn't quite recognize was calling to him from the shore. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, Children, he's yelling, Children! Like, I don't know how that would work in like the Aramaic that it probably was. It's like, I don't know. Hey guys! I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Right? I wonder if it was like, what? (laughs) Right? On the right side. The left, no, the right side. Okay, you're right, my right. You're right side. Okay. Like maybe they're thinking he sees something we don't. Right? They... He sees the water swirling or something. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now hear this. This sounds a lot like the interaction that Luke 5 describes, almost verbatim. So another gospel account, which is describing the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, places this in chapter 5, way at the beginning This is like almost a verbatim play-by-play of what took place when Peter met Jesus for the first time. It's where their relationship began. But here, John is telling us that the same thing happened that happened at the beginning, but it didn't just happen at the beginning, it also happened here after the resurrection. That's important. Verse 7. 
that disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know is John, right? That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord, right? Because again, see John, the disciple whom Jesus loved was, was with Peter when all this happened when they first met Jesus, which is why I think John recognized it was Jesus. Like when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> I love this. I get this. Get this version. So while Peter's like, this seems familiar, like I'm having deja vu right now, like something, I can't place it. I feel like this has happened before. There's a guy calling to me from the shore. He's saying, do this and put it over here. Even after he gets the fish, he's like, this seems really familiar. And then John's like, Peter, it's Jesus. Right? And so then Peter pulls a, a full-scale Forrest Gump, and he jumps completely out of the boat. Right? Like, like I, you remember that scene you know, talking about where Forrest is like, he, he sees Lieutenant Dan, and he's so excited, he just leaps out of the boat and swims to shore while his boat just completely runs into the dock. Anyway, like, that's kind of what I imagine happening here. Like, that's a level of excitement, and a lot like Peter's personality, right? Um, so I also, though, wonder... I do wonder if Peter thought he was going to walk on water. Like, notice that he actually dresses himself. Like, he was working, and he's doing the things, and it's like, that's what you do so your stuff doesn't get wet. But then he puts the clothes on and is like, you know, I, I kind of, I don't think he dives in. Like, I kind of picture this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then he's like, you know. <laughs> Um, and, you know, in his mind, he's like, well, it worked last time, right? But like, that, may, that may be some speculation, but I don't think it's that far-fetched. Anyway, I, I do think Jesus is laughing. I do think Jesus is probably laughing at the whole thing. At least he's got to be smiling, like really big on this whole scene. You know? Verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Now, I don't know if you've ever swam a hundred yards fully clothed. That seems far from land to me. But that, like, get this. This is fully clothed Peter. He's swimming a solid hundred yards while the other disciples are towing a load of fish in behind him. Like, they're trying to make their way as fast as they can towards Jesus, who, again, you know, I just think Jesus has got to be like, God, I love these guys. And yes, I am going to make the joke. Me, I love these guys. He's because he's God. All right. So, like, again, this scene is hilarious. Like, these guys, they, they have, I don't know how long it would have taken them to get it in, but it seems that they actually get to shore around the same time. So it's almost like the boat is just like, hurry up, Peter. He's swimming. You know, it's like you just see, it's just a funny scene. Verse 9. Like, there's a lot of levity here. So when they get out on land... And this is where the levity kind of goes away. They saw a charcoal fire in place. It's got fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That's an interesting number. And although there were so many, the net was not torn also an interesting detail. Because if you're familiar with the story from Luke 5, it's almost identical to this story. Like how Peter met Jesus is almost ex identical to what we see here, except for a few 
small yet extremely intentional details. Because in Luke 5, the net begins to break because there's so many fish. But here the net doesn't break. And he makes it clear that it doesn't. Like, why Why are you emphasizing this? In fact, he makes it clear that not a single fish is lost. And John seems to go out of his way to make sure we know the exact count of 153 fish. Why? In Luke 5, Jesus calls them to follow him and he promises to make them fishers of men. And I think it's clear here that Jesus is reminding them not only that he's sovereign over the catch and all things, but that not one of them, not one of them will be lost. You think they needed to hear that? I do. I think Peter needed it. Look at John 6, verse 37 through 40. Way back, in, like, right, almost right out of the gate in his ministry, John records this. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The metaphor here is that these fish represent the hearts of men. And Jesus is declaring that he has counted every one and not one of them is lost. The net did not break. And that includes Peter. Who at this point is sopping wet and out of breath. Right? But no doubt overjoyed to see Jesus. But as he climbs out of the water, Jesus basically says, go help the others with the catch. So when Peter approaches Jesus, he approaches with the other disciples, not by himself. And I want you to notice a seemingly insignificant detail, which is actually extremely important. Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire and a meal. Like I said, the levity broke when he saw that charcoal fire. Why? Because this no doubt reminded Peter of what happened while Jesus was being tried at the Sanhedrin and about to be crucified. You see, it was around a charcoal fire that Peter sought refuge from the cold. And in the process, he denied Jesus. John 18, 18 tells us. Now the servants and officers, these are the ones that would have crucified Christ, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself with the men who would have driven the nails into his hands. So as elated as Peter would have been to see Christ, the image of that charcoal fire would have sparked the memory of his own shame. Suddenly Peter finds himself in a different kind of reunion. But this isn't just a second chance for Peter to get it right. Hear this. It's a new beginning. Not just a second chance. It's not just a do-over. Right? It's a totally new start because the resurrection changes everything. You'll often hear that God is the God of second chances, but what Jesus provides us is way more than just a second chance. Like if you're entering with like one strike on you already, there's this sense of like a second chance being like, well, I better get it right or else. But this isn't about that. This is a new beginning. 
because Jesus makes all things new. After all, the charcoal fire has been prepared by the one who does make all things new. Jesus provided a fire of fellowship and communion, and he invites his disciples to join him. This is how Jesus loves Peter, and this is how Jesus loves you, which is the first of the last sort of these points here that we're going to use for application. And that is that he doesn't just give Peter a second chance. He gives him a new beginning. Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. <laughs> like he says, come commune with me. The risen Christ. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is the third appearance of Jesus, and it's the validation that they didn't dream it, they didn't imagine it. Jesus is indeed alive, and he's in the flesh. Like Thomas could have touched him, and, and here we see they're eating food with him. Like he's not a ghost. Like he's not eating the fish, and it just falls out on the ground. Like he's physical, right? This is, he's here, he's alive. And so it's also the third time Jesus makes it clear that their fellowship with him is restored. Like these aren't just one-on-one -on -one conversations where no one else sees it. Jesus involves other witnesses to see this pronouncement of peace and forgiveness and reconciliation and renewal. He does it publicly before them so that each other can remind the others, hey, you're forgiven. Your fellowship is restored. I know. I was there. And so Jesus specifically hones in, though, on Peter and the distance in his heart. Which leads me to the second point. Jesus invites Peter to be honest with what's in his heart and live by what he believes. Which, again, that's what believe means, right? That old English word that means, by this I live. Or as my wife bluntly put it, Jesus makes you face your stuff. And that's what he's doing. But why? Why does Jesus make us face our stuff? Because that stuff causes distance in your relationship with him. That stuff will fester and grow in the dark, and then it'll manifest in life, your life in all kinds of painful and destructive ways. But facing it in the presence of Jesus and by his grace is so cleansing. It's so liberating. It's everything. Like, because the stuff gets dealt with. And then there's no question about where you stand with Jesus. But sometimes we're so unwilling to deal with the stuff that it requires him to really push the issue. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now what's he talking about? First of all, when Jesus asks you if you love him more than anything, the answer should be yes. Right? It's not like, because oftentimes people really get caught up in this. Like more than these. More than what? What's he talking about? Right? More than these. Who, what is these? First of all, anything. If you love him, if you love anything more than you love Jesus, right? Like, leave it. Okay? But I want you to remember, when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't already know the answer. He's asking the question because he wants you to come to grips with the answer in your own heart, in your own soul. Where are you? 
These are questions God asks. Where are you? Where are you at? What's going on? What's going on, Adam? Where are you? Where are you right now? Why are you hiding? God knows where he is, right? He wants Adam to know where he is. What are you seeking? This is how he called his first disciples. What are you after? Why are you following me? What's going on, right? Do you want to be healed? Do you actually want it? Are you so comfortable with your lameness and the lack of responsibility in life that you don't want to take any responsibility for your own or accountability for your own actions and your own future? Do you want to be healed? Who do you say I am? Not what they say. Who do you say I am? And here, do you love me more than these? It's not an issue of whether Jesus knows if Peter loves him. The issue is whether or not Peter knows if Peter loves him. You see, there are things going on in Peter that he hasn't fully confronted or grappled with. He's just set it aside, pressed it down, doesn't want to deal with the darkness of the situation. And Jesus here is not letting it go. So he asks him, do you love me more than these? Now, what's he referring to? What are these? Like this, again, this has been a source of debate. Some say that these is a reference to the fish and the loaves. Like Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than he loves the fish and the loaves. Like that seems silly, but then when you remember in our series, we looked at the difference between the crowd and the disciple and how the crowds were only following Jesus for what he could offer them. One big example is when Jesus fed the thousands with a handful of fish and loaves. So crowds couldn't, They didn't really love Jesus. They just loved the fish and the loaves that he could provide to feed their bellies. They were only in it for what he could do for them and what he could offer them. It's essentially a picture of the prosperity gospel, right? Like, that's not true love. It's just a transactional relationship, right? And so those crowds eventually fell away from Jesus and when he didn't didn't provide what they wanted when they wanted it. So maybe that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter, right? I mean, that's really the source of his denial. Think about it. Like when he thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and usher in a physical political kingdom, Peter was ready to throw down with the sword. He even cut a guy's ear off. But instead of fighting, Jesus healed the ear and told Peter to stop. And then Jesus laid his own life down willingly. At that point, Peter not only backed down, he backed out. It wasn't the way he thought things should go. It would seem he was more like the crowds who just wanted to fill their bellies than he may have thought. So is this what Jesus meant when he asked, do you love me more than these? Was it a reference to the fish and the loaves? Others say, no. They say Jesus is talking about the other disciples. They say Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples love Jesus. Right? Like think about it. After all, Peter's life seems to be like one big contest to prove who loves Jesus the most. We see this throughout the, the gospel. Like he's, he's often the first to speak up. He's the first to step out of the boat. He's the first to declare, I'll never deny you. Right? He's the first to demand that he is in fact the greatest and most loyal disciple. And yet, he did exactly as Jesus said he would when the, in, when the heat really turned up. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. See, he was only loyal to Jesus insofar as he understood what was happening. But John and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and, and many of the other women, their love for Jesus seemed to transcend their understanding. They didn't have to have it all figured out in order to follow him. They just loved him. 
Remember, John was right there at the foot of the cross while Peter had scattered to the wind. I often wonder how much that bothered Peter. So could it be that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples do in order to have him come to grips with that comparison game that he's been playing and that chip that's on his shoulder? Still, others say, no, that's not it either. They say when Jesus asks Peter uh, if, if, if Peter loves him more than these, that they say he's talking about whether Peter loves him more than he loves the other disciples. Like, remember, Peter was a protector and a provider. He was like the leader of the crew. It's clear throughout the scriptures that Peter very much loves the other disciples. He's often quick to step up first and not just be the best, but also do it, not just to show that he's better, but to say, I don't want you to have to do it. I'll do it for you. There is a sense of that. So maybe that's what's going on here, right? So which is it? It's all three. It's all three. You guys got to understand, the human heart is complicated. It's all three. And a lot more, right? And really, anything else that might come to mind could fit here in your own life, in his life, anything. Do you love me more than anything more than these do you love me more than these people do do you love me more than you love these other people fill in the blank do you love me more than these fish and loaves do you love me more than your spouse do you love me more than your kids do you love me more than your family do you love me more than your job your money the people that you compare yourself to do you love me more jesus invites peter to be honest here guys this is one of the reasons why i make sure my kids know that god loves them more than i do that may sound weird to you It shouldn't. I make sure that they know I love you more than any human on this planet. But not more than Jesus does. Jesus, because I want them to love Jesus more than they love me. And so Jesus invites Peter to be honest here. He doesn't ignore those issues in him. He invites that confrontation in order to cleanse and restore his heart and even renew it. Remember, true love isn't blind. Jesus really makes you face your stuff. He doesn't just gloss over it. He's a thorough Savior, and he wants your whole heart, not just the part you're comfortable with offering. He's after it all. All of it. And he's willing to ask, and he's willing to keep asking, and he's willing to press, and he's willing to keep pressing until he's completed the good work of sanctification and renewal that he has started in you. The question, though, is do you love him enough to let him? Back to verse 15. So Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Notice Jesus doesn't just leave Peter, leave it here with Peter's affirmation. He commissions him. And the fundamental requirement of Peter's commission is his foremost love for Jesus. All right? But again, he's not done. Jesus keeps pressing. He intentionally makes Peter feel awkward here. He keeps pressing. Like, he knows it's awkward. He's like, good. Right? He knows there's more in there. And he's not going to stop until he gets at it all. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend or shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you you know everything. 
Like, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Remember that scene from Good Will Hunting? Oh, I gotta get through this. You remember that, there's a, that movie, Good Will Hunting, where Sean, um, Robin Williams' character, tells Will, Matt Damon's character, that all the abuse that he's experienced as a kid wasn't his fault? You know what I'm talking about? Because it's not your fault. And then Will's like, yeah, I know. You know. And then Sean says, no, you don't know. He says it again, it's not your fault. And Will says, I know. And Sean keeps pressing it over and over and over again until Will finally deals with the issues he's been repressing his whole life. And it comes down in a breakdown of a combination of anger and tears and sorrow and a releasing of what is ultimately an acceptance of what has happened to him. That's not a bad depiction of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, you, you know I do. Yeah. And Jesus is like, I know you do, but you don't. So he asks again and again until Peter comes to grips with his own heart, until Peter becomes honest with what's happening in himself. Guys, Jesus, his love is relentless. It's what this means. The love of God in Christ is relentless. He pursues us down to the depths of who we are, and He is unsatisfied with anything less than total restoration and reconciliation. Do you love me? It's not about what you can get from me. It's not about whether you love me more than they love me. It's not even about how much you love them. The question is, do you love me more than anything or anyone? This is the question above all questions, and this is the journey we're all on. See, the clear indication that we love him is when we love and care for what he loves and cares for. Like, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Does this mean he's calling everybody to be a pastor? No. But it does mean that he's calling everybody to build his church. It does mean he's calling everybody to love him and feast on his word and his presence and to feed everyone in their vicinity with it. That's exactly what it means. Hey, Pastor John Piper, I'm going to wrap up with this and, and, yeah, and our final point here. But this is what Pastor John said, speaking at his son's ordination, and he had a lot to say about the necessity of loving God and feeding his sheep. This is what he says. Love for Jesus overflows in feeding the flock with the words of Jesus. That's what lovers of Jesus do. They feed people with the words of Jesus. Loving Jesus means receiving the bread, drinking of the living water, and saying, that's really good. I'm satisfied with that bread and that water. I'm in love with that bread and that water. That's love to Jesus. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And when he asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He means, Peter, do you value me as all satisfying bread? Do you value me as all satisfying living water? Am I your soul's treasure? That's what loving Jesus is. So the first and greatest battle in the ministry is to love Jesus. And yes, you've all been called to the ministry of reconciliation. This isn't just for pastors. It's a battle to love him more than money, more than fame, more than success, more than family, and more than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Psalm 63. Give yourself to the greatest task every day. Feed on Jesus to your soul's satisfaction. That's where leading by feeding comes from for all of us. 
And he says, this is an ordination message. So I'm thinking mainly of Barnabas, my son. But every one of you leads in some capacity. You lead a family. You lead a small group. You lead a friend to Christ. Everybody is a leader at some level, and therefore this message is for every believer. Some shepherds try to get a following. They try to grow a church. They try to lead a movement by being trendy in the way they dress, clever in the way they talk, culturally cool in their references to the latest movie. Sharp. Mine weren't latest. They were old. But culturally, but this is so heavy, culturally cool in the references to the latest movies, sharp in their organizational skills, stirring with their emotional stories, relationally manipulative with flattery, impressive with rationality, overwhelming with the force of their personality, and shrewd in their branding. When those methods of leading succeed, and they do, the church grows and the followers increase, but not with sheep. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. God's word is central to everything we do. It's all about Jesus. So we lead and we feed with the word of God and towards the presence of God because of the love of God. Final point. Jesus loves Peter by making a way for him to follow even when his flesh doesn't want to. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. John 13, 36 through 38. Again, quick flashback to the night before Jesus was crucified. His death just hours away. He says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus isn't giving him a do-over here. He's making Peter face his stuff, but he's empowering him with the grace to do so. This isn't a second chance. It's a new beginning. And the grace-bought, spirit-filled, reborn, new creation that is the new Peter who loves Jesus will follow Jesus straight to the cross. Even though his flesh may fail, the spirit will triumph in him because Jesus has gone before him and made a way. Church history tells us Peter was indeed eventually killed by crucifixion, and he actually rejoiced that he was even counted worthy of it. Apparently, he even asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't deserve to be killed the way his Lord was. Peter had come to a deep realization that his greater joy was not found in his own comfort, but in God's glory. That doesn't mean that God wants everybody to suffer and die. That's ridiculous. But it does mean that there's a much greater joy available in Christ than anything this world could offer or take away. This is rest. This is joy. This is peace. This is where our faith, hope, and love comes from. And the greatest of these is love. Let's pray.